Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. I am so excited about this episode because I got to see a documentary that you all will be able to see in a couple of weeks. The film is called Inventing Tomorrow. It's going to be airing on PBS on July 29th, and I got to take a look at it this week. And today we're going to be talking with the film's director and producer, Laura Nix, and one of the stars of the film, uh, Sahithi Pingali, who is a student science superstar. She is one of the award winners of the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair, and I am thrilled to have them both on the show to talk about this brand new film, Inventing Tomorrow. Laura, we're going to start with you. First of all, welcome to Go Green Radio, and congratulations on your new PBS documentary. Thank you so much for having us. Well, it's my pleasure to have you on. The film is beautifully shot. Even if there were no audio, you can't take your eyes off the screen. It's just beautifully done. It's going to debut, as I mentioned, on July 29th. I'd love for you to give our listeners a preview of what the film is about. So the film follows environmental scientists who are in high school from all over the world. We shot in Mexico, Indonesia, the United States, and India. As all these students prepare their scientific research to take to the International Science and Engineering Fair, the Intel ISAF Fair. It's the largest high school science competition fair in the world, and it happens once a year. There's 1,800 students that attend, and it's kind of known as the Olympics of high school science. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's really amazing. I mean, it's a beautiful film and some of the stars are truly incredible and inspirational. We have one of them with us, Sahithi Pingali from Bangalore. I am so excited to have you on Go Green Radio, Sahithi. Um, I have so many questions that I want to ask you, but I'd like to begin by having you talk to us about where you're from and the environmental problem that you set out to solve with your science experiment and research. Thank you. I'm really glad to be with you. Um, So I'm from Bangalore, like you said, and we have a really bad water pollution issue. So we have these lakes in Bangalore, and Bangalore used to have over a thousand lakes, but over time, a lot of them were encroached and lost. And now we have about a hundred lakes left, and many of those are severely sewage polluted from um, just the sheer population density of the city and all that sewage having nowhere else to go. So we have some very dramatic lakes. We had one that caught fire. We have lakes that foam from all the detergent and sewage waste that's in them. We have lakes that are so covered in weeds that you can't even tell that there's a lake there. So it's really this problem that affects our city on many different levels. So there's, you know, just losing these reservoirs of water that used to support the people who lived there. Um, There's like this smell that bothers people who live around the lakes. It has ruined businesses and shops around these lakes. Um, You also have biodiversity loss where uh, like birds don't come by anymore and a lot of frogs and fish are gone. Um, You have like climate, not not exactly climate, but like micro, the city weather sort of changes because um, these lakes normally act as climate buffers and sort of cool the area around them and prevent extreme temperatures. But now we're getting more extreme temperatures because the lakes are gone. 
So it's really a problem that has effects at many different levels. And um, growing up with that is part of what motivated me to get into environmental science. I love it. And we're going to talk more about your journey in a moment. But Laura, I want to go back to you. You filmed Sahithi in her hometown and you did a beautiful job of capturing the environmental crisis that she was just describing. What were some of the most impactful moments for you about filming in that location? Well, when we arrived in Bangalore, I knew that we were confronting an issue that was citywide and it's a really enormous city. And so um, you feel it really right away when you enter. I I guess the thing that surprised me the most was the smell. I should have known to expect that from having done research before I got there, but you just can't escape what that must be like to live with that smell all the time because there's the lakes in Bangalore are in the middle of the city. They're distributed everywhere. Um, They're not like on the outskirts of the city. They're right in the middle. So you see the effects, um, especially of the foam, um, pushing up against the, the waterways. Um, when you're driving like across a bridge, there might be this huge wall of foam that's starting to come over it. And it's very, very dramatic and alarming. And, uh, you know, at one point we were, we were filming and some people started yelling at us and that can happen sometimes when you're a foreign crew. Um, and we were worried that we were bothering somebody or that they didn't like foreigners filming this, but somebody, our translator said, no, actually what they're saying is, thank God you're here. Please tell the world that this is going on. So hopefully they'll, they'll do something about it. And that was, um, that was a signal to us that we were doing the right thing. Wow. And, and what is that foam? There is a a point where you show the foam coming up into the street, blowing in people's faces. What is that foam? And either of you can answer that. Sahithi, you probably know better than anybody. What is that foam? So, It's actually surprising how long it took me to learn the answer to that question. But um, what actually happens is that, as far as I know, and from reports that I've read, um, detergents in the area have really high levels of phosphates. So in places like the U.S., detergents are regulated on how much phosphate they can put into their soaps. But that limit is much, much higher in India. So... Um, like what those ingredients do is they make the detergents foam more, which consumers Mm. like because when there's more foam, you feel like your clothes are getting cleaner. (laughs) So these companies just put lots of those chemicals into the soap and then people will use that and that washes down the drain and all the drains drain right into the lake without treatment. So that collection of that, those detergent chemicals is what's causing that. Yeah. And and really, you know, for us to just describe it as one thing, but I really want to emphasize that people need to see this film on PBS debuting July 29th because you just won't believe what it looks like. And and Laura's crew did a great job of of capturing this. Sahithi, another question for you. In the film, you mentioned that you started your work on the pollution in the lakes as kind of an activist, a protester. And then you moved into the science and data gathering aspect of the issue. Talk to us about why you made that that shift from, you know, simply protesting to getting into the science and data. Yeah, so it was a really interesting journey for me because for a long time, I was like aware of the lake issues in a sort of removed way. But then my school got really into Um, teaching students about this very local issue because I live very close to this lake that foams. So um, they had us all go to the lake and do interviews of people who live there and who deal with that issue every day. 
And that was kind of what got me started on the path because talking to those people made me realize how much of an issue it was and how many different levels it affected our city at. So from there, I joined that club in my school. I, I helped found it. And then um, it was more of like trying to educate um, people in our school and people in other schools. And then it moved to trying to educate our parents and other people in the community about this issue. So it was very much about raising awareness. And we also did like some fundraising, that sort of thing, because we were still, I myself was still in the stage where I was learning about this issue and I wanted other people to learn as well. Mm -hmm. And in the process of doing this, I found that a lot of the time I would be trying to make posters or I would be presenting, like I would be like doing a stall where I'd be talking to people about this and people would ask me questions that I wouldn't have the answers to. Like, you know, like what, where exactly is the pollution coming from or like which chemicals in the pollution cause the smell, which chemicals cause the foam. So what I realized was that I had a real lack of scientific information and as someone whose favorite subjects in school are the sciences and who like wanted to go into the sciences and into a STEM field in the future, um, that immediately stood out to me as something that might match my skills and interests. It was this problem area that sort of came to me as I was doing this work. And I realized, whoa, like that might be something I can deal with. And that's sort of how I moved into creating a scientific platform to find that um, scientific data around water and also help people engage with that kind of scientific information, make it really accessible to people who care about the environment. That is so cool, Sahithi. I love that story. Laura, in the film, you show Sahithi and and all of the students that you covered with their families. What was the significance of that choice? Why do you think it's important for viewers to learn about the families from which these students come? So we made the decision to um, do a lot of filming with people's families, with their friends, in their schools, so that you understood the community from which each scientist came. Um, I find that the students were really motivated to protect where they're from, and they're deciding to do this significant amount of research. And you know, students who go to ISEF are known to spend 600 hours each on their projects before they defend in front of the judges. So it's a really significant amount of time that that's, takes place over many months. And when you're meeting people like Sahithi and the other kids in the film, you realize that they're doing this because they come from a place that has a severe problem and they're, they're, they're doing it out of love. They're doing it because they want to protect the community that they're coming from. They want to ensure a safe, safe and healthy environment for themselves and their families for the future. So I think it's really important to understand um, the families that motivate them to do that. They're doing this out of, a, out of a love for that and out of love for their community. And so you need to spend time in that community to understand what they're fighting for. Because, you know, that's a really important thing to understand about these choices that we make about the environment, about climate change. I think um, it's important to act out of love. And if we connect to that feeling of love, we can also remember why this is so important to be doing this action. It's not because it's politically right or wrong or, you know, it's dangerous. Those, are, those things are all true. But it's because we want to live and we want the people that we love to live with us and to be able to ensure our own survival. I love that. That's a that's beautiful. And one of the things that struck me as I was watching the film and and watching the various families and how they interact was that these young scientists, these young brilliant minds came from very different backgrounds. If we ever had any sort of notion or stereotype about what kind of a family, you know, can 
can bring about a great scientific mind and that it's, you know, a, a limited parameter that you blew that away with the film because you showed that these young, brilliant minds came from every conceivable walk of life. And I loved that you showed that. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more to talk about with Laura and Sahithi. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guests today are Laura Nix and Sahithi Bengali. Laura is the producer and director of a brand new documentary that'll be coming out on PBS starting July 29th. It's called Inventing Tomorrow. It's a documentary that follows six young scientists from Indonesia, Hawaii, India, and Mexico. And they all competed in the Science Fair of Science Fairs. It's an international um, science and engineering fair that's sponsored by Intel. And um, we have Sahithi Pingali, who's one of the contestants with us as well. And she's going to be talking to us about what she invented. And Sahithi, I want you to walk us through the solution that you invented. Talk to us about the probe, the app, and the cloud-based site that you created and help us understand how it works. All right. So, the first part of the system is basically a system is, is this monitoring kit that works with an app on your phone. 
So anyone around the world um, can just gather water from their tap, from a nearby lake, pond, or stream. So you just get a water sample, and then you take, there are test strips in the kit. So you dip the strips into the water, they change color, and then you just put it on a test card and take a picture with the app. And what the app does is it reads the colors and automatically maps them to um, the contaminant concentrations. So it basically does its cool machine vision thing and tells you what um, the results of your test are. It will interpret that for you and tell you what that means in terms of the safety and health of your water. And um, in the version that I presented at the fair, I also had a probe which you would just dip into the water and that would use electronic sensors to sense some more parameters and also send that to the app. And then once the app has all of this data, it gathers it from users all over the world who are using this monitoring kit and sends it all to a common cloud platform. And what I'm doing there is I've built several um, uh, analytics and visualizations. Some of them use machine learning. And they basically tell you how your um, water is changing over time. It will warn you if there are any big changes that might indicate pollution. Um, it will allow you to compare with other water bodies near you and around the world. It also identifies trends in different water bodies and tries to see if solutions used in one part of the world could be replicated for similar pollution in other parts of the world. So it's really a system that um, on one level is enabling very local citizen action, really helping people engage with their local water and um, do some hands-on testing themselves but then also make something bigger out of that data and like bring it all together and use it for um, like global analytics that really make connections between the water issues in different parts of the world and try to enable much smarter remediation approaches. Sihivi, I hope you don't mind me asking, but how old were you when you invented this? I was 16 when I started, and now I'm 18. <laughs> <laughs> You're a rock star. I, and I have to say, one of the things that I love about you, know, you on the, the show, but also in the film, is that sometimes scientists have a hard time communicating you know, what they're doing and, and their brains are so on fire that they have a hard time bringing it down to where you know, people who are not as into STEM can understand it. That's not an issue for you. You are really, really um, articulate. And you make it so accessible for all of us. I love that about you. Laura, back to you. Um, the film shows several teenagers from around the world. And I'd love for you to talk to us about the young men that you filmed from Monterey, Mexico. Tell us a little bit about their story. So we filmed with a team in Monterey, um, Jose, Fernando, and Jesus, and they um, go to, uh, they, well, they're in college now, but um, at the time they were um, attending a high school, and they were working on a science research project that um, is photocatalytic paint. So what happens is that there's a, there's a trigger in the paint that when the sun hits it, it's able to pull um, air pollutants out of the air and traps it inside the paint. And then if the, you have the ability after that, if like there's a whole building painted in that, you could like take a hose and spray it. And, and those um, pollutants would then go into the ground and become nutrients. And we found that to just be mind-blowing. And the reason that they started that project is 
because they live in a city. It's uh, one of the most industrialized cities in Mexico. And Monterrey has very terrible air pollution. Um, they go back and forth each year, whether it's Mexico City or Monterrey that has the worst. Sometimes one year it's Monterrey, the next uh, it might be Mexico City. And the boys were very motivated to do this work. One of them had an uncle that had um, died of a respiratory disease. There is a great amount of like respiratory illness in the city. It's really affecting people's health. Um, they spend a lot of time um, on these dirty these buses that are taking them to school and back and um, to the university and back where they were doing their research that uh, causes a great amount of um, exhaust and smog, and they spend a lot of time at these like very smog-filled bus stations, and that was what motivated them to do this project. They, they come from modest backgrounds, but their families are incredibly motivated to make sure that they get an excellent education. They're the first um, young men in their families to be able to attend university, and we found that doing this research was really the key to them being able to take that next step for their education. It really activated them and made them so much more um, excited about their education and about the next steps for lives. So the, the science fair really played um, an amazing role, not just in um, assisting them to do this work and getting them to the United States to attend the fair, but really being an impetus and a motivator to attend university. And I'm happy to say that two years later, they are all still attending university. That's fantastic. And I, I did, I loved their story. I mean, it was so, uh, so cool to see the three of them and the way they interacted and, and also to, to get to see their families as well. So Heathy, back to you. I'd love for you to talk to us about the student perspective of being at that international science and engineering fair, what a contestant goes through in order to get there. And then when you're there, like how bad did you want to win? Talk to us about your experience. So I, I really loved my ISOF experience. So um, it starts out pretty tough. So the selection process differs for different parts of the world and different parts of the United States. But for India, I had to do an online screening first, and then I had to go attend sort of a, a national fair, which was similar in setup to ISOF, but much smaller in scale just for the people who qualified from around India. And I think that was probably where I felt the most competitive stress, just because I, I really wanted to make it to the next level. And um, I hadn't presented my project in person to anyone and was like, really, I didn't know how people would react. So um, that was sort of like the big test for me. And then after making it to ISAF, it was really, really great because India does a really great job in training everyone who makes it onto the national team. So I got to go to training camps with everyone else who qualified and uh, made some really great friends who from around the country who were interested in science. And that was a lot of fun. And then we went to ISAF, which was just extraordinary. It's like a giant science festival. Mm-hmm. Um, and like it was for me, by the time I got to ISAF, I had realized from the kind of reactions I got from people and especially from people at home who worked on lakes, I sort of realized that this was much bigger than the competition, the project that I was doing. So um, while the project was a way, while the competition was a way to keep me motivated and sort of give me deadlines to keep me sort of accountable and um, make sure the project kept moving and improving, by the time I got there, I had a lot more confidence and I really believed that it wasn't about winning. 
what I really loved about ISAF was that it was just the celebration of people coming together from all over the world. Um, and it was really about making friends and having a really good time appreciating the amazing work that everyone was doing. And, um, yeah, so I think by the time I got there, it was much less about winning for me. And if you want to know whether I actually did, you would have to watch the film. That's right. We're not going to let out any any spoilers at all. You do have to watch the film, which, again, is going to be debuting on July 29th on PBS, Inventing Tomorrow. Now, Laura, our director and producer of the film, back to you. Um, the film also includes a story of a 17-year-old girl from Indonesia. And I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about her life and her project. So. Nuha Ansaresi um, was um, also doing work with her friend in Tam Putri, and they live on an island in Indonesia called Bangka. And Bangka is the second largest source of tin for tin mining in the world after China. And just the reason that we, there is such a need for tin is that, you know, the phone that I'm speaking on has tin in it. I'm probably, there's probably tin from Bangka in the room that I'm sitting in because it's used in every single kind electronics worldwide. And the problem with mining tin is that um, when you're doing it on, on land, you end up disrupting the, the groundwater creation and then it releases lead into the groundwater. Um, the island of Banka, when you fly over it, it looks a little bit like Swiss cheese because they've basically mined all the tin as much as they possibly can out of the island already. So similar to oil, they've now moved to the ocean to be able to mine tin. And the process of mining tin in the ocean means you're dredging up um, the heavy metals from the ocean floor. And when you do that, you're dredging up all the heavy metals. You can't extract only tin from the ocean floor. You're also taking up lead. So they bring it onto a dredge. And uh, this could be an industrial dredge or an illegal dredge. And um, they separate the tin on the dredge. And then they just put back the the other um, sands from the ocean floor back into the water. And so what happens is that the lead filters through the water really slowly and ends up contaminating the water with lead and killing the coral reefs and contaminating um, all the marine wildlife, which makes it very difficult to be eating fish. And since it's an, an island that has a fish-based um, food system that you can imagine um, more problems it creates down the line. So there's huge health problems on the island of Banka. And Nuhan and Tan have grown up with this, and they realize that it's the basis of the economy of the island. They want to be able to do something that changes this industrial method so that it's safer for people. And they proposed a filter system that would go into the dredge so that when they put the sand back into the water, that they just filter out the lead before it goes back in. It seems very simple in a way and something that would be so important to be able to do. So they created a prototype of that and um, their research involved them going out um, to visit the illegal mining. There's um, these dredges that are done on a kind of smaller basis and it, mm -hmm. uh, they tie up in like a big armada. There's like maybe hundreds of them, like maybe 300 at a time. And they're very brave. They just get on a boat and they go out there and they meet the illegal pirate miners, and they ask some questions, and they keep working on um, their filter system. They go into the lab, and they start working on, like, you know, what kind of filtration will work, and they write up their research, and, uh, and Tom was not able to attend the fair because it conflicted with her university right. exams, and her family didn't want that, 
so but Newha went um, and I love the story. Yeah. And I love seeing her at the event. It was it was precious. I mean, it really was heartwarming. We've got to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we have so much more to talk about with Sahithi and Laura. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you're all joining us today. And if you're just tuning in, I'll catch you up. Our guests today are Laura Nix and Sahithi Pingali. And we're talking about a brand new documentary that's going to be airing starting July 29th on PBS. And it's called Inventing Tomorrow. And we're talking to Sahithi because she was one of the contestants in a science fair, international science and engineering fair, kind of the Olympics of science fairs. And she has a really cool project. And so I want to dig more into the details of your project, Sahithi. Early in the development of your work, you made some really important choices about which pollutants you would test for in water. And I'd like for you to talk to us about why you chose to test for those elements or parameters. Yeah, so choosing the parameters is actually really complicated, something that gave me a lot of issues when I was trying to build this project because it's really, really important to me that this whole kit be something that's very accessible to people. I wanted to make it really cost-effective and really easy to use. 
so that anyone could engage with it and use it to learn more about their water. But that's hard because often um, the most important parameters or um, the ones that are like um, give you really good information are the ones that are incredibly hard to test or incredibly expensive. So what I prioritized was one um, testing for parameters that have immediate health, health effects. Um, for example, copper, which if there's too much copper in your water, you'll get gastrointestinal issues or chlorine, where if you have too much, it can cause health problems, or if there's too little, it can cause bacteria buildup. So really prioritizing things that um, can immediately, like if you detect that they're out of range, that I can immediately make an effect on a person's life by saying, oh, that's not healthy. And also parameters that are easier to test, so things like pH and hardness that may not be the absolute most useful, but they are really good to know and are easy enough to test that it's worth doing. That's amazing. Um, now, you are currently an undergrad at Stanford University. Um, what are you currently working on, Sahithi? So I'm actually still working on the same project. Um, actually, I'm working on it part-time during the school year, and I've been working on it full-time this summer. And it's really exciting because I, it's, it's come a long way because I started two years ago and it's continued to evolve as I learn and as I develop it. And I'm actually going to be doing a big launch of this project alongside the PBS broadcast of Inventing Tomorrow. So if you are interested in getting one of the very first kits that we'll be releasing um, as part of this project, which is actually now named Water Insights, you can go to waterinsights.org and we have a sign-up where you can um, sign up to find out about when kits become available and, um, you know, get hold of strips, get hold of the app, and actually test your own water and contribute to this big global citizen science initiative. That is so amazing, Sahithi. Congratulations. I, I, I'm going to sign up and I hope all of our listeners do as well. We have listeners from literally all over the globe because we are an internet-based talk radio station. And so we could end up uh, getting quite a few test cases for you. So I, I hope that that helps. Laura, back to you. Um, you also in the film followed a 16-year-old young man from Hawaii whose name is Jared. Talk to us about his story. So Jared Goodwin lives in Hilo, Hawaii, and um, Hilo is the area in the United States that has had the most tsunamis of any other place in the country. Um, and uh, he lives next to a pond. He, he grew up going to that pond with his grandmother, and he always heard that there was something about the pond that was messed up. He didn't quite understand it until he got a little bit older. And then he found out that the pond was contaminated with a really high amount of arsenic. There had been um, a factory that had been there um, back in the day, and when they were um, doing their work, they would just dump huge amounts of arsenic into the pond without any thought about what kind of long-term ramifications that would have. So there's an unusually high amount of arsenic there, which contaminates the fish. And the other thing that's unusual because of where he lives is that when tsunamis hit, it basically moved all the water out of the pond all throughout the town. So there's a kind of distribution area around the pond where there's a high, high levels of arsenic. And he wants to be able to gather data about that so that people know where that arsenic is. 
you shouldn't be building a baseball field or a school on top of where a playground when there's where there's a high amount of arsenic. It's okay to put a parking lot on top of it, but you have to know where that arsenic is. So he's doing data research to be able to figure out where that is. And um, that's the research that he brought to the fair. He's very, very motivated to do this kind of work because he really enjoys spending time in nature. He's an avid amateur photographer. Is is uh, you should check out his Instagram feed. It's aloha.jared, and it's what, he's very talented. And he spent a lot of time um, looking at birds and going to the volcano and photographing wildlife. And he was taught elders to respect the Aina, to respect the power of nature on the island and that harmony that exists there. And he's really bringing that love for his home and his love for the island and his knowledge of the island to motivate his work. And it's a really inspiring really beautiful story. That is so cool. Sahithi, there was a a really poignant moment in the film for me when you were talking with another girl at the science fair competition, and you observed that teens from developing countries may be more aware of the environmental pollution problems in their country than teens in the U.S. And I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit. Why do you think that's the case? And furthermore, what are the ramifications of that being true? So on one level, it's because of a good thing. It's because um, a lot of the really basic environmental issues that developing countries face, the U- the U.S. doesn't have those issues. Like, for example, we have, like, just garbage dumping on the sides of streets, and we have, like, this raw sewage pollution. So really essential things like that, the U.S. in a lot of areas has done a really good job in controlling uh, those kind of pollution issues. But... Um, that doesn't mean there aren't problems. And what that leads to is that a lot of the very visible problems that you can see with your own eyes have been taken care of, but there's much more insidious problems like like heavy metal pollution water, which can be much harder to detect than things like sewage or, um, you know, like pharmaceutical pollution. And there's just these sort of emerging environmental problems that are... Um, not as visible to the public and uh, even when there's things like trash dumping it's always like far from residential areas not in places where you would see it so it um, what I've experienced uh, because I've spent time in both India and the U.S. is that in India it sort of hits you in the face every day because you it's really visual and it's something that you experience on a daily basis so it's not something you can ignore while in the U.S., it's usually like, oh, like I might hear about it in the news, but I'm not going to experience it, and I'm probably not going to understand the way that it affects my life. And I think that makes a big difference to the way that you engage with these problems, because that having feeling that it's immediate and has an effect on you really makes you care about it and more likely to act. I think that's so profound, Sahithi. I mean, because it it becomes less academic and more about survival. And I I just, I think that's a fascinating perspective. A lot of our listeners are students in the U.S., um, some high school, some college. And and I think it's really important for them to hear that message uh, because it isn't impossible to see environmental degradation and pollution in the United States, but you do have to look a little bit harder and you do have to pay a little bit more attention than 
perhaps just walking out your door and, and seeing it. So I, I'm really glad you shared that perspective. Laura, you got to spend a lot of time with the teens that are in your film. And you talked a little bit about what you feel like motivated them to engage in the projects that they took to the to the fair and the you know the competition but talk to us a little bit more about you know what you saw in their day-to-day preparation um you know and in their lives that that you felt like was motivating them to keep moving forward with these projects i think you know each student um shares the fact that they all have a problem that they're dealing with that they want to solve for their community and that's the part that is the same across each student. They're all facing an issue that's going on literally in their backyard that they see every day. And I was really struck by their ability to just be aware and observant and look at the world around them and ask the right questions about what they're looking at and how it can be solved. And I think that is a very unique perspective that youth bring to these issues. My generation has um, basically learned to kind of look the other way and, uh, and kind of defer that awareness or, or not acknowledge it. And what we're seeing with young people is that they are all taking a look at the world that's been left to them by previous generations, and they're saying this is not okay. And, and some of them are angry, and some of them are just deciding to act. I think many of them are just deciding to do something. They're not being deterred by politics. They're not getting kind of caught up in how it's framed. They're seeing a problem. They're saying we have to find a solution, and they're coming up with those solutions and saying Let go. let's go. And I think that they offer us a model um, of how we need to, to act as well. And I think it's very easy to say something like, oh, the youth are going to save us. It's not their job to save us. Um, I think our job right now is to give them the tools that they need. Part of that is equal access to high-quality STEM education and all kinds of education so that we can give them the tools that they need to create these solutions And we also need to be able to amplify their voices. So when we're hearing from youth environmental activists or youth environmental scientists, we need to hear those messages and we need to lift them up and and distribute them as far as wide as possible because they are leading right now and it's our job to follow and to amplify. I love that, Laura, because I think, you know, sometimes you see uh, a lot of social media posts from adults saying, oh, I'm really counting on the next generation go guys, you know, be great. Mm -hmm. You know, you're our, you're our hope, but there's still a role for adults. You know, it's not time to completely pass the baton at this point. We still have a role to play um, to help facilitate the innovation and the creativity and the brilliance of the next generation. So it's not like we can all just kind of kick back and watch them. Like we're tuning in, you know, to, to watch the show uh, of what they're going to do. There's still a role for all of us to play. That's a very active and important role. And I love the way that you put that, Laura. That was awesome. We're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we have more with Laura and Sahithi. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you tuned in. And I want you to tune in to something else, and that is a new PBS documentary coming out on July 29th called Inventing Tomorrow. It is an amazing film. Laura Nix, the director and producer, is with us, one of the stars of the film. Sahiti Pingali is with us today on the show. And we've been talking about the film itself, but also the project that Sahiti has been working on. Um, Sahiti, many of our listeners are college students, some are, are younger than that, but they want to help create a more sustainable world. They tune into Go Green Radio because we cover a wide breadth of sustainability topics and bring on subject matter experts in water, energy, food, air quality, um, all types of sustainability issues. Um, but a lot of times these young people feel overwhelmed just by the sheer magnitude of the problems that we face as a planet. I'd love for you to pause for a moment and give them some advice. What advice do you have for those listeners? Environmental issues definitely can be overwhelming, especially when you think of things as large as climate change. Um, It can be really hard to think of where to start. And what I've always found is that it really helps to think very locally because I'm pretty sure every place has some sort of environmental issue, whether it's very visible or not. So I would say start by looking in your own backyard because there's sure to be problems there and there's sure to be some solution communities growing around those problems. So just looking at your local water, your local air, your local soil, and just um, thinking about, you know, where does your water come from? Is it sustainable? Um, Are you recycling? So starting with those small things is a really, really good starting point. And then, of course, as soon as you start understanding any problems that are around you, the next step is to start taking action. So that could be anything like joining a citizen science project, like um, the one that I'm running, Water Insights, or 
you could join a local activism group and like rally with them. And I would say really, really don't limit yourself. So do start small, but don't stop at small because there's, there's really no limit. So depending on what your interest is and what your skill is, for me, it was finding a way to use my interest in science and technology to solve an issue. But there's a lot of room to create art around problems, to create, uh, like I said, technology solutions. There's a lot of room to speak about this and spread awareness. There's um, a lot of need for fundraising to help um, with environmental remediation. There's just a lot of different approaches you can take. So I would say first, become aware of problems, start engaging with them in small ways and uh, making small changes in your own life. But then just see how far you can go, like join a group and then lead a group and then um, or like build something small and then build something bigger out of it. You can just keep on taking steps and there's really no limit to how far you can go because there's definitely no shortage of problems. There's just all you need need is the motivation and finding where your skills can be applied to solving an issue. Sahithi, you are so wise. That was maybe the best advice that we've ever given out on Go Green Radio. We've been doing this 11 years. Thank you for that pearl of wisdom. That was tremendous. I love the way that you put that. Laura, when people watch your film, and I know they will, all of our listeners, PBS, July 29th, Inventing Tomorrow, watch this film. Um, What do you hope they will feel and understand by the time they finish watching the film? Well, the feedback that we've gotten from audiences so far is that when they see the film, they feel incredibly inspired because they see young people from all over the world facing really huge, um, conceivably insurmountable problems, and yet they have the courage to look at it straight in the face and do something about it. So I hope that everybody takes that message away with them, just echoing what Sahiti said, that you should really decide to act, and anything that you do is enough. We can't get too caught up in, oh, it's too big of a problem. One person can't make a difference. Everybody can make a difference, and, and it's really important to just do something and start somewhere and not, not get paralyzed. Um, I made the film to leave audiences with a sense of agency, with a sense of hope, because I think that that can really inspire us to action as well. And, you know, we're, we're living in a time right now in the United States where many of the regulatory laws that we have are, are under attack and are yet either being weakened or dismantled. Um, one of Sahiti's friends, a young man named Prashant, who you see in the film, um, for instance, he works um, on an issue that has to do with a pesticide called chlorpyrifos, which is being used all over India. It's been outlawed in the United States for a long time because it's incredibly toxic. And once it's in the soil, it stays there forever and contaminates food and contaminates um, people's people and um, causes um, high rates of cancer. That, for instance, is there's, there's a move now within the administration to allow that pesticide to be used again in the United States. Um, I could go on and on about like all the different regulations that are being weakened at this moment. And we can't take these things for granted. They were very hard fought and we need to make sure that those um, those laws are still in place to be able to keep this country safe, to be able to keep it healthy. Um, so I hope that people are motivated to, I hope young people are, are motivated to, you know, take their STEM education seriously or decide how to participate in this, in this movie from a humanities angle, perhaps, but also eventually to become active in a civic way and to vote 
and to be involved in these discussions and in, in, in public discourse and, and to be engaged in, you know, talking to your community, talking to your family members so that we can have an ongoing conversation about how every single one of us can participate in, in living in a healthy world. And that's not just for students in the U.S., that's for students everywhere um, and for adults everywhere to be able to amplify and publicize the efforts that we're seeing with youth environmental activists and, and youth environmental scientists. Absolutely. I love it. Sahithi, since you are so wise and you have such great advice, I'm going to tap into you for one more piece of advice. What are some of the things that you've learned since your experience at ISEF about what it takes to scale a project like yours from a local level to a broader level so that it can have a substantive impact on the world? So that's that's the biggest challenge I'm facing right now because what I'm doing is exactly that. I'm taking a science project that was a prototype and trying to bring it into the real world and make it accessible to hundreds, to thousands, to millions of people. And that growth is hard. And I would say the number one thing is to realize where your limits are. Um, I'm one person. I'm not going to build something that can reach millions of people. But if I build a really good team and really good collaborations with people who um, offer expertise in various aspects of launching something like this, then that's what's going to make the difference. So it's been really important for me to reach out to people who can help me scale this to get lots and lots of advice from people who are scientists, from people who work in business and uh, have done a lot of work on scaling products out. So really tapping into different resources and people who come from different backgrounds and taking that advice to heart has been incredibly important. And yeah, that's that's what's helping me succeed right now. Well, and what you're discussing, Sahithi, is something that I think Laura and I were, you know, discussing a little bit earlier, and and I talk about it in terms of multi generational solidarity. That there is a role for everyone to play. Um, you know, you have an innovation, but there are people who know things about what it takes to scale that innovation. And I, I feel like if we can all put our best players from every generation uh, on the same team, you know, and we're not working in silos. We have the best chance of of winning this uh, situation that we're in in terms of the challenges that we're facing in the 21st century from an environmental standpoint, that it really is going to take all of our best minds, regardless of age or region or background or gender or anything else, working together. And, And I love that you... Are, are taking advantage of what you can reap from other generations. So Go Green Radio listeners, you've got two homework assignments. The first is go to waterinsights.org, sign up for Sakithi's Citizens uh, Science uh, program and get your test kit. She's going to love to hear from you. And then secondly, starting July 29th, check out the PBS documentary, Inventing Tomorrow. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. To 
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program.